Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. Today, November 11th, is a special day across much of the world. Many in the United States and across Europe, and probably elsewhere as well, celebrate today a holiday which was originally deemed Armistice Day. It was named as such because it began as a celebration of the armistice which ended World War I, silencing the guns and bringing what seemed to many like peace. Yet over the years, this Armistice Day celebration was not only drowned out by more thundering guns of war, it also transformed into its own antithesis. Not the celebration of peace, but the celebration of war. But I suppose such a transformation of the good shouldn't be a surprise to us, as the co-opting of the good is an age-old strategy. At the beginning of the biblical narrative in Genesis, Satan co-opts God's good garden to become an enticement unto death. Likewise, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry in the New Testament, Satan again co-opts God's goodness and human needs, and he turns them into temptations by which Jesus is offered power. Like Satan, we humans, especially human institutions and governments, human abusers, we know how to co-opt the good, how to weaponize peace. Today, as the world celebrates not armistice but war, not those who brought peace but those who brought death, I think it would be invaluable for us to explore how today, November 11th, has been co-opted as a tool of propaganda. The first armistice celebration of sorts was on November 11th, 1919, as one might expect. It was actually celebrated much, much earlier, as earlier as the late 5th century, though. See, in 490 AD, the Bishop of Tours, France, recognizing an already long-established feast day for St. Martin of Tours, instituted a 40-day fast in preparation for Christmas. As this fast began on St. Martin's Day, the day became known as St. Martin's Fast, or St. Martin's Lent, or Martin Mass. Today we know this 40-day preparation as Advent. St. Martin's Day became particularly popular in places like Germany over the years, with St. Martin becoming actually the patron saint of both the poor and the harvest in Germany. Now that's all well and good, knowing that November 11th was formally celebrated across Christian Europe and the Christian world, what does that have to do with our November 11th celebrations? Well, let's begin by taking a look at the life of St. Martin of Tours. St. Martin was born in the mid-4th century, and while neither of Martin's parents were initially Christians, Martin was a seeker of Jesus from a pretty early age. Yet, even into adolescence, Martin never made it through to becoming a, a pledged disciple of Christ. While Martin didn't officially join the ranks of the church, he was very committed to a Christ-like lifestyle of love and mercy. That Christ-likeness was severely put to the test, however, when Martin was conscripted into the Roman army because his father had a, a high rank, and so I guess at that time the, the children were supposedly uh, kind of conscripted in automatically. What well, was here in the military that Martin had the opportunity to see uh, the Christ's kingdom pitted against the kingdoms of the world. Now, Martin distinguished himself from the other soldiers because he was, he was trying to be a good Christian, and he, he set himself apart in a number of ways. 
First, while his rank was entitled to having a servant, Martin actually served others, including his own servant. He took on the role of a servant himself and, you know, did the the menial tasks and, and things with his servant or for his servant. Martin also served those outside of the army. One day while Martin was riding through uh, Mines, Martin saw a haggard-looking beggar. Now Martin reached behind his back and, and cut off the large, uh, large part of his red cape, and he clothed the beggar with his own military uniform. Now, it was this act which uh, Martin actually has become most remembered by, and which has earned him the nickname Martin the Merciful. Doing this thing, stooping to a, a, an unworthy beggar and actually cutting off a part of his uniform to clothe him. Like, unthinkable. But the act for which uh, Martin seems to be least remembered is actually an act that um, I think is, is the most important, but it, it's an act that you have to dig really deeply to, to find many accounts of. So one day, Martin became extremely convicted about the job that he was being called to do, right? He was conscripted into the army, and, and part of what they had to do sometimes was go kill people. Now, the army was about to go out onto the battlefield and slaughter enemy forces, and St. Martin just couldn't reconcile that with his Christian beliefs. So, St. Martin confronted his commander and told him, quote, I am a soldier of Christ, and it is not lawful for me to fight. End quote. Now, wanting to convey his convictions as distinguished from cowardice, St. Martin said that he would stand in the front of the army and, and walk into the enemy lines just like everyone else with one exception, of course, that he would be weaponless. St. Martin's peacemaking wasn't just exemplified here in the negative. It wasn't just in actions that Martin refused to participate in. St. Martin also sought active peace. He didn't just avoid the military, he, he also sought ways to bring peace. Um, you can see this, I think, really evidently later in Martin's life, when he gets involved with this, uh, this heretic, uh, heretic named Priscillian. And th this guy was put on trial for some of his uh, heretical teachings. Well, while Martin firmly believed that Priscillian was guilty, Martin was appalled at the way some of the church were seeking resolution here. Rather than uh, reprimand or excommunication, Priscillian's uh, accusers were seeking for the government to actually execute Priscillian. Now, St. Martin advocated all the way up to the top for the preservation of Priscillian's life, but to no avail. Priscillian, along with several, several others, were executed by the state at the behest of the church. Now, this took place in, in 385. It was actually only five years earlier that uh, Theodosius pr uh, pronounced Christianity the state religion. So it was only five years in between Christianity becoming the favored religion of, of Rome and uh, the first state execution at the behest of the church. It really didn't take long for the church to, uh, to use that power. So Priscillian's execution is considered the first time that the state intervened in such a manner on behalf of the church. But as we all know, it certainly was not the last. This marriage of church and state opened up a dark chapter in church history that is a really long chapter, continuing to be written even to today. So rather than bringing peace and life, the church has often wrought death. 
And St. Martin, then, is one who is set in opposition to this dark, wayward church, this church separated from the teachings of Jesus. St. Martin reminds us of the true ways of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. Christianity has had a long history since the establishment of St. Martin's Day, more than 1,500 years ago. Priscillian's execution was just the first of many at the hands of Christians seeking power. And war, this act renounced by Martin as being unlawful for Christians, has become an act strongly supported by Christians, in fact, fueled by them uh, many times in the United States, at least. Um, because not only do Christians support wars, but uh, it's an act that many Christians think one has to support in order to be a good Christian. Jesus flipped tables, but modern Christians have turned them. Rather than overturning justice, many Christians today seek to avoid injustices being done, uh, being done against themselves by grasping at the levers of power, which end up actually creating injustice towards others. And the mercy that Martin doled out to beggars, that's something that we no longer do because our poor are supposedly of a different sort. They're undeserving poor. Considering our warmongering, wealth-hoarding society, it really is amazing that St. Martin's Day has not only been a prominent feast day for so many centuries, but that November 11th has come to be celebrated more globally. Now, it's awesome that St. Martin has a day to commemorate all of these things that we so badly need to remember as Christians. Mercy, peace, faithfulness. That's beautiful, right? Unfortunately, St. Martin's Day has been drowned out. It's been co-opted. The celebrations in Germany and many other European countries uh, have been turned into celebrations that are kind of similar to Halloween with lights and candy and costumes and all that. Sometimes they'll commemorate more than this, but the most I could find is that sometimes uh, some places will have reenactments of Martin as a soldier cutting off his red cape. Now just think about the imagery that that act conveys. Now you could see the mercy in it, and that would be beautiful that he's, he's being merciful to a beggar. But really what I think people see is you have Martin portrayed as a, a beneficent and merciful soldier. Isn't that what protectors of the fatherland are? They're our heroes. They're instruments of peace and comfort for those within their borders. So St. Martin, if he's remembered at all, he's remembered as a soldier, not represented or remembered as a peacemaker. Even the Wikipedia page at the time that I accessed it said nothing about Martin's larger story of peace. This type of reframing is something that we see so commonly, the co-opting of a positive force in order to neuter it. I think it was Richard Rohr who I heard argue that the church essentially did this with St. Francis. See, St. Francis was all about throwing off riches, helping the poor, and bringing peace. He even made an excursion into the enemy territory of a, a Muslim that the, the Europeans were fighting, uh, and he witnessed to this leader there. Like He went over unarmed, I think, with one other guy, and they just went to, to witness Christ to him. So St. Francis... He, he sought peace and mercy. But what did the church do? Well, they gave Francis a whole order. The Franciscans. That's great, right? Just like any business will tell you, though, after a large corporation absorbs them, 
Being co-opted doesn't allow you to disseminate your values, but rather causes you to be conformed to the larger entity or institution. The Franciscans became like St. Francis in name only because the church had largely co-opted St. Francis and transformed him into an entity that they could control. I mean, when I was in Italy, I saw some of the places used by the Franciscans, and they weren't at all the types of places that uh, looked like accommodations St. Francis would be setting up or approving of. Co-opting is essentially the weaponization of peace. It's an institution or structure that feels threatened, recognizing the threat, and then bludgeoning that threat with peace. While the, the church could have sought to destroy St. Francis, that would have cost them greatly, as he had garnered such a large following. He was popular. But if the church seemed to embrace him, they could not only appear to be on Francis's side, they could also profit off Francis's popularity and support. Institutions don't like loose canons, especially canons whose prophetic message is aimed back at one's own ranks. So if you commandeer the canon, you can aim it any which way you'd like. It's not just the church that does this kind of thing. Our society and government does the same thing with people like Martin Luther King Jr. We name roads after him and put up monuments while leaving King's broader, deeper teachings and legacy unspoken. And the problems that he identified unresolved. But you'd never know any of that because looking at any map of the Atlanta area where I'm from makes it seem as though King was far more influential than he ended up being. King, King's name has been co-opted so that our society can say that racism is gone and that we've made peace, when in reality we've just silenced outcries with the invocation of a name. We've talked a bit about silencing in regard to monuments and such before. And we've talked about how Monuments like the Apotheosis of Washington, where the Lincoln Memorial can silence the bad by emphasizing and over-exaggerating the good, particularly thinking about the, uh, the episode that we did on Haiti here. And it's true, you can silence the bad in this way by overemphasizing the good, but you can also erect monuments and co-opt good leaders to make it seem as though there is recognition for their ideas when it's actually a way of silencing them. Read The Radical King, and you'll see that he was much more about poverty and war, and, and that many of his core ideas are not addressed today. He's, he's overly simplified uh, in order to silence him today. Now, in light of all this co-opting we humans like to do, it sure seems to me that St. Martin's Day has been co-opted and transformed. Yes, it was neutered a bit throughout Europe ages ago into the focusing on St. Martin's mercy apart from his peace. But, you know, there has been an even greater neutering and bastardization of St. Martin's Day since then. On November 11th, 1919, many nations in the Western world began the celebration of Armistice Day. It was a day intended to remember not only the military dead, but the war dead in general. In many places, this is actually, it was called Remembrance Day rather than Armistice Day. I think it actually still is in, in Germany. It was a day intended to reflect on the havoc that war brings, and it was a day to celebrate the armistice which ended the war that would end all wars. It was a holiday that remembered the horror of war and hope for a peaceful world without it. Of course, we have a century of hindsight which enables us to see this notion of a peaceful and warless world as rather naive. 
But there were forebodings in the Great War's final gasps, which indicated the type of world that would be birthed out of this new armistice, and it would not be a world of peace. For starters, there was the symbolic fact that Amines, the very city in which St. Martin had given his cloak to a beggar in mercy, was the main location for which a counteroffensive began to end the war only three months before the war's end. Where Martin had once warmed a poor man with his red cloak, men and women were now made beggars by the tens of thousands and innumerable cloaks used to cover the countless dead. It was here that the Amin's gun was captured as well, one of the largest artillery pieces of the war used to deliver death from tens of kilometers away. In the main three days of the conflict here, forces incurred nearly 50,000 combined casualties. And all of this at the hands of Christians who worshipped the same God as St. Martin, a God whose law, St. Martin had said, made clear that it was unlawful to fight. Did an armistice soaked with the blood of enemies have any real chance of producing peace? Of course, symbolism and hypocrisy weren't the only foreshadowing of a failed peace. Because you see, for those who despise an enemy's life, it's only a small step to despise all human life. And nothing shows the despising of life more than the final hours of the Great War. In the last 11 hours of the war, between midnight and 11 a.m., the war racked up more casualties than were experienced on D-Day of World War II. But whereas D-Day's casualties came as the result of a battle to gain the upper hand in a war that wasn't yet won, the November 11th, 1918 casualties, which were incurred with the knowledge that the war was already over, essentially, with, the, with very few exceptions, most leaders knew that an armistice was going to be signed on November 11th. And many leaders even knew that an armistice had been signed prior to delivering orders for assaulting the German positions. Orders for assault, which came all the way up to 10.30 a.m., a mere half hour before the war officially ended. Why waste close to 11,000 human lives in a war that was essentially over? The reasons abounded, with some more conjectural than others. Some leaders were looking to make a name for themselves and saw these last moments as their final chance for glory and promotion. Some were cowards, and they dared not question the orders that they received, and they ordered their men forward out of fear, or duty, or cowardice. The British and Canadians seemed to have pride bound up in their final sacrifice. The war for them had begun in Mons, where they had re uh, to retreat from the Germans, so it only seemed fitting to some of the, the leadership that, in the final hours, they take back Mons and make the Germans retreat. Some of the divisions sent to die were expendable in the eyes of leaders. The 92nd Black Division, for example. Why not sacrifice a few black lives if it meant killing some more Germans while it was still accepted? For others, like the U.S. soldier to die, uh, the last U.S. soldier to die in the war, just a mere few seconds before the war ended, Henry Gunther, it was his last chance to redeem himself. He had told his friends uh, earlier in the war to avoid the war due to its horrors and the pointlessness of it. Well, army censors, of course, intercepted this letter and demoted Gunther to private, and he was from that point on viewed as a German sympathizer. 
So from then on, Gunther volunteered for dangerous missions, and he eventually charged some German machine gun nests at 10.59 and a bunch of seconds on November 11th in hopes that his name would be redeemed. And it was. You can now visit Post 1858 in Maryland and find Sergeant Henry Gunther VFW. That's right. And his rank was reinstated posthumously for his valiant sacrifice. Sacrifice for what? Many Americans had the same question that you probably have right now. Why was there all this waste of life when we knew that the war was over? In a congressional inquest, that question was posed to a number of leaders as well. While their answers were largely attempted avoidances, one of the questions asked to them was also, how many generals died on the last day? Of course, the answer to that question was zero. And how many other high-ranking officers died that day? The leader said that they didn't know, but the assumption was zero. The lives of simple, expendable men were thrown away by those with status and power who were unwilling to sacrifice their own lives. Speaking of power, the final foreshadowing of a tumultuous peace was the peace treaty that came out of the armistice. Now, most people know that the terms of the peace treaty with Germany were so harsh and unjust that they led to World War II. But the Germans were, were not viewed as humans in this peace treaty. They were viewed instead as, as enemies. President Harry Truman, who served in World War I, and the president who would later decide to drop the atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, he loved power. If you've seen the movie Oppenheimer, you'll catch a glimpse of Truman's dealings with the scientists and his disregard for warnings about the devastation to human life that the bomb brings and the blood that it brings onto one's conscience. Truman really doesn't want to hear about consequences, though. He just wants the power to do what he thinks is best for him and his people, despite that cost in human lives, especially the human lives of enemies. Truman gives us a glimpse of his disregard for this human life, in including civilian lives, when he wrote a letter to his soon-to-be wife describing his hatred of the Germans. In this letter, which I'll link in the show notes, Truman said, quote, It's a shame we can't go in and devastate the, uh, Germany and cut off a few of the Dutch kids' hands and feet and scalp a few of their old men, but I guess it will be better to make them work for France and Belgium for 50 years. End quote. Of course, Truman's hatred for the Germans and his specific methods of violence uh, here are referencing the propaganda against Germany, uh, this idea that the Germans had gone into Belgium and were chopping off the kids' hands and stuff. So Truman just wanted some revenge. It's a, a sad sort of irony, though, that um, Belgium, Belgium was the, the country who had gone into the Congo and chopped off tens or hundreds of thousands of human hands in, in, in their uh, empire only a decade before. And actually, with the tacit approval of the United States, who was the first country to recognize King Leopold II's sovereignty over the Congo. Uh, but that's a rabbit trail I'll save for a distant episode uh, that I'm, I'm planning. Anyway, the point is that there was great animosity towards Germany. And that animosity was reflected in, in this treaty that was called a Treaty of Peace, though it was anything but that. As a result of the so-called Peace Treaty, Germany was economically neutered. They lost some of their most productive land, 
and hundreds of thousands, if not more than a million people, starved to death as a result of these measures, along with the blockade on Germany. While the armistice and the subsequent peace treaty may have silenced the guns for a time, the terms only made future conflict inevitable. A few decades later, war did come, and peace was silenced by the roar of the cannons once again. All naivete about the possibility of perpetual peace, about a war to end all wars, that was thrown off, and the realization that war was a way of life became clear. Especially after the final scene of the war, the destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki with the atomic bomb. This dropping of the atomic bomb marked death in a number of ways, not merely a death of the possibility for peace. It also meant the death of Christianity, in a sense. Consider that the Urakami district of Nagasaki was a historically Christian center of the country, home to an estimated 15,000 Christians who had avoided the government's ban on Christianity throughout the centuries. With one atomic bomb, 10,000 of the 15,000 Christians, two-thirds of them, were killed immediately. Christians killed by Christians. Yet as the Japanese Christians buried their dead, our dead, our Christian brothers and sisters, a new life seemed to spring up in American Christianity. President Truman, the destroyer of Christian lives in Japan, and the one who wanted to scalp and maim Christian children and the aged in Germany, when he was introduced as the man who helped to create Israel, Truman replied, What do you mean helped to create? I am Cyrus. I am Cyrus. With enemies obliterated and a soon-to-be-contested monopoly on nuclear weapons, and with the power to resurrect whole nations from the dustbin of antiquity, Christian America was reinvigorated with a new zeal to grasp at the levers of power. The president who would immediately follow the great President Cyrus was a man of war as well, Dwight D. Eisenhower. Eisenhower's America was now pitted against the communist threat. A threat not only to economic and political thought, but to theological thought as well. For communism was an ideology with godlessness at its core. And what could the world need more than Christian crusaders to take the helm of the most powerful nation on earth, commandeer its armed forces, and fight this godlessness? Eisenhower was aware of such symbolic force and the constituency that religious adherents promised. This is why I think, at least in part, Eisenhower became the first president to be baptized in office. He did this only ten days into his presidency, and only four days prior to the first national prayer breakfast. My, how he found God fast. Maybe you think that's a little bit unfair, but baptism is like a core component of what it means to be a Christian. And Eisenhower, all the way back in 1948, uh, you know, half a decade before he became president, uh, a reporter asked him about his infrequent worship in church, and Eisenhower replied, he said, quote, I am the most intensely religious man I know, end quote. Yet he didn't get baptized until he became president. So following the baptism and the national uh, prayer breakfast there in 1953, all within the first uh, three weeks or so of his inauguration, Eisenhower, or at least his administration, the government that surrounded him, continued its symbolic push towards Christianity. 
Eisenhower helped to ensure that Under God was inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance in June of 1954 and supported In God We Trust being placed on all currency in 1955. And while all this blending of church and state was going on, this sacralizing of Christianity, Brown versus the Board of Education was decided, and racism raged on at home. Simultaneously, Eisenhower and the CIA entrenched and expanded the brutal politics of the U.S. through assassinations and threats. I think a quote from the book The Devil's Chessboard summarizes this era pretty succinctly. It says, quote, The Eisenhower-Dulles era was a Pax Americana enforced by terror. The administration ensured U.S. post-war global dominance by threatening enemies with nuclear annihilation or with coups and assassinations. It was empire on the cheap, a product of Ike's desire to avoid another large-scale shooting war, as well as the imperial burdens that had bankrupted Great Britain. By leveraging the U.S. military's near-monopoly on nuclear firepower, the president hoped to make war an unthinkable proposition for any and all American adversaries. By utilizing the CIA's dark sleight of hand, the commander-in-chief aimed to render it unnecessary for the Marines to go crashing ashore in far-flung locales where unfriendly governments had taken office. End quote. But just as Cyrus had no problem nuking two-thirds of Nagasaki's Christian population, neither did Eisenhower's military have a problem devastating many Christians across the globe. Because a lot of the violence occurred in, in places like South and Central America, where so many coups and military operations took place um, in primarily Christian areas. As Jesus Galindez summarized this period, quote, Never before in the history of the world has one single government more effectively supported dictatorial powers in free nations. End quote. That was said shortly before the United States helped Mr. Galindez to disappear. Yes, America has known peace at home, and many an invader has been kept at bay knowing that the U.S. Army is ready to be the policemen of the world, wherever they deem the lives and oil are worth protecting. So sure, there's been peace and stability to a certain extent on much of the world stage, but that peace is illusory in at least two ways. First, it's illusory because that peace comes at the end of a sword. It's a peace obtained by threat. Such a peace isn't true shalom, reconciliation, and a peace of fullness. It's artificial peace. But secondly, this peace is illusory because while middle-class America and up might experience Pax Americana as comfortable security, this peace is built on the lives of so many slaughtered and threatened civilians in developing nations. Coups and overthrown democracies, military interventions for oil while refraining from non-beneficial interventions and stopping genocides, Strong-arming the perpetuation of unjust labor practices and economic entrapment to feed Western materialism. Sure, we can call this peace because it feels peaceful to a minority percentage of Americans, but it's really a facade of peace. A facade that masks the house of terrors that lies behind it. The Bible calls this house of terrors Babylon. A false prophet who proclaims peace and co-ops the church, embraces materialism and comfort, breeds idolatry and destruction. This is not Jesus' peace. Yet this is the peace that, since World War II, so many American Christians have been proclaiming and embracing. 
This is the peace that so many American Christians want the power to continue as they grasp at the levers of government and military. This new life that has been breathed into American Christianity has not only resurrected the ancient state of Israel, it has resurrected the ancient city of Babylon, an idolatrous city masquerading as savior, masquerading as a prince of peace. It should be no surprise to us then that Babylon's peace has led to the transformation of today, to the co-opting of St. Martin's Day. The armistice and subsequent peace treaty that ended World War I was a peace that, like the Pax Americana and the Pax Romana, relied on the power of armies and the threat of a sword. Alternative kingdoms to Christ's kingdom run on the blood of the oppressed and on the edge of the sword. Because Babylon needs this power to wage war, it has sacralized the military into a religious locus of worship. Now, rather than celebrate St. Martin's mercy and peace, or even the peace of an armistice, we celebrate today as Veterans Day. But why Veterans Day? When did this change take place? This co-opting of a day of peace into a day to remember warriors and the battles they raged against their enemies? If you paid any attention at all this episode, I bet you can nail the date to within a year or two. That's right, 1954. On June 1st, 1954, in the middle or towards the beginning of Dwight D. Eisenhower's presidency, only a little over a year after Eisenhower was baptized in office, a little over a year after the first prayer breakfast, and less than two weeks before In God We Trust was inserted into the Pledge of Allegiance, the United States of America began to celebrate November 11th as Veterans Day. The U.S. was clearly already waging an ideological war, as evidenced by McCarthyism and all the religious posturing by the government. But the U.S. was also gearing up for a physical altercation with communist countries. They didn't know how long the Cold War was going to remain cold. And they knew that to keep all their client states on leashes and any opportunists at bay, to keep this Pax Americana, they needed a strong military. How convenient it was, then, to teach the masses how to celebrate the god of war, a god they were already making sacrifices to. But with Veterans Day, sacrifice became sacralized in yet another act. While America and God were being fused together by the state, so too was the military. And this helps to explain the following years when we see terrible wars like the one in Vietnam or the Second War with Iraq, two wars that were fueled strongly by conservative Christians despite a broader distaste in the rest of the public. How could Christians be fans of war at all, let alone unjust ones? Because the state had trained them well. It had drawn them in with the promise of power and prestige something Reinhold Niebuhr saw and cautioned against as early as 1969 in his article, The King's Chapel and the King's Court. Thus, November 11th, Martinmas, the first advent intended to usher in the Prince of Peace, became a day to commemorate war. Such a thing only makes sense, though. I mean, those who have refused to fight have long been hated and condemned by their fellow countrymen. Why would we want to commemorate the silence of guns, this peace. It's only in the last 150 years that pacifists haven't been killed outright or sent to prison for their refusal to fight, and only the last hundred or so since they've been able to avoid prison or significant abuse in, in certain countries during times of war. 
The Quakers were often hated and abused for their refusal to fight. Hitler blamed pacifists in part for their loss in World War I. And you can see in Bonhoeffer's letters of advice to friends and students that he recognized that there was a price for his recommendation in avoiding war because it could mean the death of those who heeded such advice. George Patton on the American side felt similarly about pacifists. In a poem that Patton wrote on Armistice Day, November 11th, 1918, uh, we see a poem longing for the day when he can once again know, quote, the white-hot joy of taking human life, end quote. Patton says uh, something about pacifists in this uh, terrible poem. He says, quote, And looking forward, I could see life like a festering sewer, full of the fecal pacifists, which peace makes us endure. End quote. Patton here is writing this terrible poem about how great it is to take human life and how he's going to miss it and, and all that stuff. And here, when he talks about the pacifists, he's saying that he's depressed that the war is over and that he and the rest of his society must now endure peace which means that Patton must also put up with the pacifists until war comes around again and the pacifists can be despised. Other stories from World War II abound in regard to, to a disdain for, for pacifists and their brand of peace. You know, Desmond Dawes, if you've ever seen the movie Hacksaw Ridge, uh, which is a great movie, he comes to mind, as well as Franz, can't say his last name, Jager Stotter. Um, he's represented in the movie A Hidden Life. He's actually believe uh canonized by the catholic church he became a saint but he's this guy who just refuses to fight and everybody's like dude just just do it and then he's like well do i have to take an oath to hitler like i'm not gonna fight but okay i can i can join the army and i you know i'll be in a medical brigade or whatever uh kind of like desmond dawes but uh i can't take an oath to hitler i'm like dude just just say Say you will. You don't have to mean it. You can say whatever you want and not mean it. And everybody keeps counseling him in this consequentialist ethic of just, look, you're not doing your family any good. You're not doing anybody any good by just dying for nothing. Uh, but he sticks to his guns, <laughs> uh, and they end up executing him, uh, just like Sophie Scholl uh, via guillotine. So, uh, yeah, they don't like pacifists, even, even up to World War II. Uh, they're killed for refusal to fight. History is just absolutely filled with disdain for those who denounce war and who refuse to uh, be propagandized into blind allegiance to a nation. Peace at the edge of the sword is cherished and revered, while pacifists are hated. They're hated because they tear a hole in the fabric of the worship of the god of war. False gods and false worship require delusion and cohesiveness. If someone withholds their worship, and even worse, if they uncover the object of worship as an imposter, they then deny the meaning that the acolytes wish to procure from their worship. They tear a hole in that fabric. They drain the meaning that society has fused into the altar. Or as Wilfred Owen put it, uh, a World War I poet and, and unfortunate casualty of the Great War, dying in its waning hours, Owen said uh, that this idea, dulce et decorum est pro patria mori, that it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country, he says that this is an old lie, 
he saw right through it. That's amazing how someone like Owen and someone like Patton could see the exact same horror of war, yet they arrived at two completely different conclusions. I'm sure there are all kinds of motivations and reasons that go into shaping one's views about the glory or the the deprecation of war. Yet I think something else that Patton said um, elsewhere to, to in some of his speeches or to some of his subordinates, I, I think this thing that he says highlights what might often be a significant difference between those who embrace war and those who denounce it. You can also see this if you watch the movie Patton. It's in, in the first like five minute speech. It's a the guy is a terrible guy, but man, it's a it's a really good uh, speech that he just lays everything bare out in the open. Patton says, quote, No bastard ever won a war by dying for his country. He won it by making some other poor dumb bastard die for his country. End quote. Patton loved war because he never planned on being a sacrifice. He planned on sacrificing the enemy on the altar of Mars or Ares. This is, in my opinion, why we Americans love war. It doesn't ever really cost us anything, does it? I mean, not really. When you compare American losses to the losses of those that we fight, our deaths are a pittance. And since Vietnam, we haven't faced any serious losses of life. We haven't made any serious sacrifices in terms of numbers killed, uh, or even of, of our own property destroyed. I mean, when, when have we ever been threatened in the United States? You know, other than 9-11, um, we, we haven't really experienced any losses uh, on the mainland. A 20-year war in Iraq and Afghanistan killed about 7,000 Americans. But for the Iraqis and the Afghans, they lost hundreds of thousands, many of those civilians. Who really was sacrificed on the altar? I mean, it makes sense, doesn't it? Patton's right, and I appreciate his candidness. War is intended to be a human sacrifice, but that sacrifice is intended to be the other person in order to benefit myself and my nation. It's only when you begin to see the other as human rather than enemy and peace as reconciliation rather than threat you can arrive at a place where Ares is no longer your god. But that's not the kind of peace that Babylon wants. Because Babylon fosters power and comfort. If you're the one in control and you can maintain your comfort, you do that at all costs, especially the cost of other. So today, November 11th, has long been a Christian holy day. And despite living in a secular age, it has not stopped being a holy day. This holy day, like other holidays, is a commemoration with purpose. It's a day when society and tradition tell us what and who to worship. St. Martin pointed us to look outward towards loving God and others in mercy and peace, true peace. Our modern celebration on November 11th, however, points us inward to the love of self and one's own at the expense of other, and at the denial of God's law. I think the date given for St. Martin's commemoration is especially fitting then. See, the saints are usually not commemorated on the day that they're born, but rather on the day that they die. But St. Martin isn't celebrated on either of those dates, actually, because uh, he died on November 8th. Instead, he's celebrated on the 11th, because it was the day that he was buried. 
where he requested, in a cemetery for the poor. I think this is fitting for the commemoration of St. Martin, because what is peace and what is mercy other than a dying to self? A dying to selfishness, to greed, to gluttony, and to hatred, and a burying of our enmity and prejudice and judgment. But this dying to self isn't some kind of masochistic endeavor with no hope just being some doormat. Rather, it's a dying to one's lesser self in anticipation of the promised resurrection unto our revealed selves in Christ. This is the very thing that baptism depicts our having died with Christ and rising again as new men and women. That's what Christianity is all about. Not making the other poor dumb bastard die for his country, not sacrificing other, but rather laying down our lives for our country, our true country, our kingdom, the kingdom of God. World War I was a terrible war filled with so much bloodshed and pain. Yet in the end, all that the weapons and the killing did was change the geography. When I was in Belgium, I actually had the opportunity to visit Ypres, a place where they had dug underground tunnels and set explosives under the enemy. Even today, a hundred years after the war, the geography has been clearly marked by the war. Yet the hearts of humanity weren't changed. In fact, if anything, they were hardened with even more hatred, and it became the precursor to the next world war. Waging war against flesh and blood, against other humans, is a task unbefitting a Christian. Not only because, as St. Martin said, it is against God's law, but also because it's stupid. It doesn't work. It has the opposite results. So today, as the world around you celebrates war and celebrates those who wage it, remember St. Martin, a saint who is willing to put down his sword and die that others might live. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.